Sometime, if you haven't done this yet, I want you to pay attention to what adults walk out to O-Kids and thank them. Because we've got a phenomenal team of children's ministry folks, of volunteers who do incredible work and uh, teach deep biblical truths uh, to our kids. And it's really a cool thing. So uh, if you get a chance, make sure you thank them. Well, good morning. We have a fun morning ahead of us. Um, We have one of the passages of scripture that is, um, it's a little challenging. It's one that theologians and Christians have wrestled with, written a lot about, argued over, probably for a couple thousand years. So no small task, but we're going to chew on that today. Anytime we deal with any piece of scripture, difficult or not, uh, we do well to remember a few things. And so I'm going to just put a couple before you. One, remember context. Remember that the book of Hebrews, as Jeff was saying, is written so that people would set their eyes on Christ. It's written to a group of Christians which are really starting to feel pressure, persecution. A lot of things are ganging up on them and they're, they're getting worn out and they're not sure it's all worth it. And the book of Hebrews, the mantra is hang in, hold fast, look to Jesus, keep going. So remember the context. But also, when we read a passage of scripture, particularly one that may be difficult, we always need to bring in other scripture. What does this other scripture say about that? So that we have a full-orbed view of the whole counsel and will of God. So this morning, you may hear me reading out a lot of other scriptures. It's so that we can understand this passage in light of the whole of scripture. And then finally, we have to be willing to hold attention where scripture does. We are far more uncomfortable with tension than it seems God is. God is very happy to say Jesus is 100% God and he's 100% man. And we're like, "Um, what? That's 200%. God's like, no, it's 100%. Okay, you're God. I'm not. Fair enough. But we have to be willing to hold some tensions. And we'll see some of that this morning. Uh, But before we start, uh, would you please pray with me and just ask God to teach us. Ask God to make his word clear uh, so that we would know him better this morning. Lord, thank you for the privilege to open your word together uh, without fear of persecution. Thank you for the privilege of worship, uh, that you ask us to come into your presence, and that you promise you provide what we need to be there. This morning, would you make a difficult passage simple and clear? For those of us that need to be unsettled, would you do so thoroughly? For those of us that needed, need comforting, uh, would you be our peace? So teach us from your word this morning that we may leave here knowing and loving you more. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So our passage this morning spans a little bit of two chapters. We're still in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be reading from 511 to 620. So if you have a Bible or a phone or anything else in front of you or a bulletin, pop that open. We're going to be looking at 511 to 620. The words will also be up on the screen behind me as well. So it's an interesting passage. We'll explain most of the things in it, but would you read along with me as we look at God's very word? Starting in 511. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right, so we can go home now, right? Nice and clear, simple, nothing challenging to understand in that at all. Well, hopefully as we leave here today, we'll have some more clarity, challenge, and encouragement from this passage of scripture. The phrase, the carrot and the stick, is one that most of us are familiar with. The carrot being positive reinforcement, the stick being negative reinforcement. The carrot encouraging someone to make a good choice. The stick, kind of a threat that if you go this way, you're going to get whooped. And we see it in every facet of life. Even think of international politics. The, often is, the, the choice is often set before a country. Would you like sanctions or would you like an aid package? Would you like to trade with us and have a weapons deal? Or would you like us to cut off access to the financial markets of the world? Carrot, stick. Uh, we even see it in parenting, right? Would you like to get your allowance this week? Or would you like to spend two weeks grounded, right? Carrot, stick. 
We use it all the time. It even comes up in the wonderful world of dog training. Would you like to receive a treat because you did the right thing? Or would you like to go hang out in your crate because you destroyed another thing, which in our case would be half of my Bible, a t-shirt, a power cord, a metal crate, a bag of fertilizer, a bag of Toms, a bottle of pills. We don't have time for the rest, but you get the idea. The carrot and the stick. Well, what are these used for? They're used to motivate us or to motivate someone to the end that we think is appropriate, right? We dangle the carrot saying, hey, if you do this, this good thing will be yours. Consider the good, consider the reward. And the stick is consider the punishment and go in the right direction. The carrot and the stick. And the book of Hebrews is full of both. There are somewhat unsettling warnings and mind-blowing encouragements and assurances. And this morning in our passage, we're going to see both the stick and the carrot that are held before us to encourage us to cling on to and follow after God. And we need to hear this and we need this motivation for the same reason that the people of Hebrews did. They, they were getting slow of hearing. They were kind of tuning out the voice of God, getting distracted by persecution, by pressures, by noise. They weren't really listening anymore. And that was affecting their actions and their choices. And so the author is trying to wake them up. It's not really that different with us. There's so much noise in our lives, so much in our world, in our own hearts that are pulling us in so many places that we often have stopped listening to or even longing to hear the voice of God. And so this morning, we're just going to move right through the passage and see what does God say about people in our situation? And we're going to see three simple things. We're going to see one, what's the problem, right? What is he addressing here? Two, what's the warning that he gives? And then three, we're going to look at the assurance that's offered. And in your bulletin in the outline, I made them alliterate with S's and all kinds of good preachery things. But that's the, that's the nuts and bolts of where we're going to go this morning. So what's the problem? You see it immediately in the first verse that we had read, in verse 11. Basically, what is happening is the author is going on this big thing. Jesus is so great. He's so great. He's so good. He's the perfect high priest. He's better than Moses. He's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then he pauses. So right before our verse, he talks about a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then right after our section, he talks about again about a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And what we essentially have is an aside Where he's like, I'd really like to keep talking this great theology, but your ears are plugged. And so he takes a step aside to offer a pretty big warning to kind of get them, hey, wake up. Listen to what I'm talking about. So the problem is, they're not listening. They've become dull of hearing. Sluggish. And it's not a knowledge problem alone. It's not that they've just stopped going to Sunday school and learning good things and haven't memorized any books of the, you know, the order of the books of the Bible But it's actually translating into their action. And we can tell that because when it talks about moving on to maturity, people that are mature have discernment to know the difference between right and wrong. Kind of implying that because they've stopped listening, they're growing numb and dull to knowing what the right God-honoring thing to do is. It's a problem. It's a big problem. And the other descriptor that is used of them is that they aren't moving past the basics of Christian truth. 
Now, when you read the first verse of chapter six, if you're like me, you kind of pause and say, wait, wait, that doesn't sound right. Because it says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Do you think we should leave the doctrine of Christ? Should we stop talking about Jesus? That, that doesn't sound right. So what's happening here? The language of foundation is there. What he's saying is, look, these truths are essential and they are central, but you're supposed to build on them and you're not. All you're doing is just repeating the same thing over and over again. The song, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible told me so. That is true. It is an essential truth. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time and all you can say about Jesus is Jesus loves me. So the Bible, you know, you're missing it. There's, there's more to be added to that. There's more to be built on that foundation. Well, think of it this way. Imagine that you're going off to college, right? And it's your third or fourth year and you were an English major like, like Christy was. And so you go to advanced lit, lit 501 or something. And you go up there and the first day of class, you're sitting there. And if you're like me, you're nervous. You're looking at the syllabus and you're like, how much work is this going to be? And if you're like Christy, my wife, you're looking at this and like, this is so fun. I can't wait to learn things. And the teacher gets up to the, to the blackboard, as pretending they still use those. Starts writing, right? A, B, C, all the way down to Z. And says, today we're going to be going over the alphabet. And we're going to make sure we go over the alphabet every day because it's really essential. It's really essential that you know the alphabet. So we're just going to keep going over the alphabet. That doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't do that. But can you study advanced English literature without the alphabet? No, it's foundational, but it's designed to be used to be built on. You don't have a foundation of a house poured and then go live in it. You build the house and you live in the actual house. So what this passage of scripture is saying is they've stopped growing. They know the elemental truths, but all they can do is kind of rehearse them over and over. And they've not teased out the implications or the applications or the depths of that truth. They're not growing. And just like the ABCs, all the things listed here, faith, repentance, we never, ever stop using them. There probably won't be a Sunday here where you do not hear the gospel of Jesus clearly presented to you because it is essential and we never move past it. But we're always building on it. Consider a simple truth like this. If you are trusting in Jesus, you have a new identity. Your identity is that you are a child of God. That is a simple but profound truth. But there's so many things to explore and tease out what that means. What does it mean that you are a dearly loved child of God when you feel things like shame or guilt? How does the fact that you are a child of God affect how you work? If you're not there to perform, but to honor God, that changes something. How does that identity affect how you relate to friends, families? You see, it's a simple truth, but it's meant to be built on. And the expectation of all of scripture is that when we come to follow Christ, we grow. We grow in our understanding and our actions and our emotions and our hearts to look more and more like Jesus. And the problem here is they weren't growing. So a simple question. I'll just throw it right back to you. 
Are you growing? Does your life, your knowledge, your heart, does it look any different than when you first started following Jesus? For some of us, I've had seasons of my life when I look back and I was like, I seemed more excited about God when I started. And what that is, that's an invitation, invitation to check our hearts of what's going on there. Are we growing? We at Orangewood like to present a lot of opportunities for you to grow in your understanding of God, of who he is, in your mind, in your knowledge, in your heart, your emotions, your affections, and in your actions. So we do things like preach. We do things like next Sunday, a Sunday series is starting about what does it mean to pursue joy in Christ? What does it look like to live this Christian life? We don't do things like that because we're bored and we've got the free time and we want to look busy. We do it because we want you to grow. We want to provide opportunities for you to grow. Why do you think all the time we're saying, get in a community group? Community groups are really important. Hey, have you heard about community groups? By the way, we have some community groups. Because it's an opportunity for you to come face to face with other people, to know them, to love them, to be known and to love, and to grow. To figure out what does it look like to walk out the gospel together. Women's ministry, they don't study uh, books of the Bible every semester because they've got the free time and they're bored. They want to grow. So they're digging deeply into the book of James this semester because they want to know God and his word more. The men who go to Band of Brothers and who come here Thursday morning at 6.30 a.m., they're not all doing it because they're morning people. I can't speak very knowledgeably on the subject because I've been twice. It's very early. But why are they getting up early and going? Because they want to grow. They want to be in fellowship with other men. They want to understand the truth of God's word and what it means for their life. Are you growing? And then are you listening? Or maybe like the people that Hebrews has written to, maybe your ears are plugged a little bit because you're letting life get really loud and the cares and the concerns around you are dominating and drowning out the voice of God. Okay, but is that really a big deal? I mean, okay, maybe we're a little complacent. Maybe we're not growing so much. Like, come on, Dave. At the end of the day, is that really that big a problem? Well, If you read the passage, you see that the Bible seems to think that it's a pretty big warning sign that needs a strong response. And so what we have is a severe warning where the author essentially takes out his bullhorn and is yelling, pay attention. These are troubling signs. Watch out. It's kind of the idea that you know who your friends are when you have food stuck between your teeth, right? Like you ate a spinach salad because you're super healthy, you know, at work at lunchtime. And then you went hours and had meetings and conversations with dozens of people. And then you get home and you realize a big piece of spinach is just right between the two front ones there. No one told you. And then a friend or a family member is like, you got a big piece of gunk there. You got to go take care of that. I I can't even hear the words you're saying because all I'm looking at is a piece of spinach in your teeth, Right. You know who your friends are when they're willing to tell you things that are uncomfortable or weird or awkward. As your pastors here, the word of God, the author here, as your friend is saying, hey, watch out. This is important. I love you enough to warn you. And it's not a subtle warning. 
Much like if you've ever driven past a sign that says road closed or bridge out, those are not small signs. They usually have flashing lights attached to them saying, danger. That's exactly what's happening in this text. We are being warned that not listening those things, maybe you're just struggling, but they may be symptoms of a deeper problem. That maybe you don't actually know and cling to the gospel. And that is worrying. That is problematic. All right, so we're going to try to dig into what this is and isn't saying in the middle section of this text. And we have to kind of answer a couple of questions of what it's talking about. And one is, who is this passage talking about? So I'm going to read the description. I'm going to make you do the work. I'm going to read the description of these people that are being talked about as having fallen away and not being able to return. And you tell me who you think it's describing. All right, so lean in and listen as I read the description of the character traits. Starting in verse 4 of chapter 6. Those who have once been enlightened... They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That sounds like church people. Are you a little uncomfortable? Because I am when I read this sometimes like, but that, that, that sounds like people like me. That's church people. And that's when all of you, because you know your Bible so well, you say, whoa, 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 Dave, hold on. I know my Bible, and I know that the scripture is is clear with examples that those who belong to God cannot fall away like this. And I would say, right, you are. You're probably thinking of passages like Philippians 1 through 6, where it says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, being God, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Or maybe you are thinking of Romans 5.10 and 11, where it says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Doesn't sound like a changeable thing. Or maybe you were thinking of the chain in Romans 8 that talks about those whom God predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Doesn't sound like there's a lot of off-ramps there. It sounds like he's the one that does the work and brings people through. Or maybe even you were thinking of Romans chapter 8, where it says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Or maybe you'd rather hear Jesus say it himself. So you'd look to a passage like John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40, where it said, Jesus himself says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. 
Or you've been holding out on me and you're waiting to pull your ultimate trump card of John chapter 10, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So you've got this idea that believers exist in Jesus' hand. Good luck trying to pull him out of Jesus' hand. Oh, and by the way, God's hand is clasped on top of that. So you're saying to me, Dave, well, that verse can't be right if it's talking about church people. If Christians can never fall away, who have assurance of salvation, which they do. I read all the scriptures to kind of make a not so subtle point. That if you are in Christ, he will keep you. But as when we were preparing for this, Jared reminded me, just because you are in the garage doesn't mean you're a car. And my fear and my suspicion is that there's going to be a lot of really good moral church people that are not trusting in Jesus for salvation that will go to hell. Because Christ is the only hope. And so just because you are in proximity to Christian things does not mean you have a relationship with God. Just because you participate in outward trappings of religiosity doesn't mean that there's an inner reality Trusting in Jesus. So if you are here today, this does nothing for you. If you are not trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you are, this is how you grow. But if you're just here kind of hoping it rubs off, it's not going to work out for you. Don't do that. Stop. There's another question we have to ask here too of what does falling away mean? And what it really means is utterly and completely rejecting the gospel. This means walking away from God and never coming back and saying, no, that's not true. That's bogus. I'm going to do my own thing and I'm never coming back to that. That's what falling away means here. And I want to offer a couple qualifications in case some of you are like really uncomfortable and nervous right now. For some of us, that's where we need to be. And for some of us, it's not. But this isn't talking about something like sinning. Falling away isn't sinning. It isn't even falling in something like habitual sin. If you're sitting here thinking like, maybe that's me because I, I just struggle with stuff. And there's this one thing I've been struggling with my whole life. And I'm not even sure I'm getting any better. That's not what this is talking about. Because scripture assumes that until we come home to be with Jesus, we are going to struggle with sin. That's why at the end of chapter four, it tells us to do things like draw near to our great high priest so that we can find help. We can find mercy and grace from him because we are going to struggle in sin. Sinning is not disqualification. Peter rejected Jesus three times and that wasn't considered falling away. He was an apostle. You even have the lovely example. It's always great what God includes in the Bible. In the the church of Corinth, in Corinthians, where there's a guy who is having an affair with his mother-in-law. Fantastic. Thank you for including that. The Bible's a very real book, right? But in the second book he writes, he says, hey, that guy's repented. Let him back in. Accept him. So even like heinous sin does not disqualify you from being in a relationship with God and being a part of the people of God. 
It's not saying sinning is falling away. So if you are struggling with sin, remember the prodigal son. Remember that Christ welcomes repentant people back with with open arms always. And he offers mercy and grace to help even as we struggle with sin. Well, what about something like struggling with doubt? I mean, maybe you're sitting here thinking like, there have been times I'm just not sure about all this. I hear all this stuff and all that. Is this really real? Is it up for what it says? I don't know. I'm confused. I'm upset. I'm, I'm really wrestling with this. Most Christians will go through a season of feeling that. And that is not falling away. That is not disqualification. Thomas doubted. Job was very confused about what God was doing. David, throughout the psalm, sometimes more angrily yells at God than we would ever dare. Basically saying, God, are you up there? Is, is there anybody home? Because I am getting beat up and it doesn't seem like you actually care. Doubting, wrestling, struggling, that isn't what's in view here. And all of those things were called to wrestle to God, with God, to repent and struggle with sin with him, looking to him for help. Or maybe you're sitting here thinking, what about my family member or my child? They grew up in the church and they, they don't seem to care anymore. It seems like they've walked away. This is personal to me. I, I have enough family members that were raised in the church that seem to want nothing to do with God. That it, it, It's a deep burden. It's really hard. And some of you know that burden. And let me just encourage you, keep praying for them, but know that Jesus never rejects anyone that comes to him in faith and repentance. And all of us know stories of people that have completely abandoned the faith, that God has wooed back at some point, has brought them back to himself. He is a gracious, loving, merciful God. So take heart in that. Or maybe you're asking, well, am I really saved or am I just playing at church? Again, it's really good to look at the Bible and what scripture says. And Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10 and Acts 2 both say, for everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. So if you're here and you're uncomfortable and you're worried about that, do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that you need Jesus' work and death on the cross alone to forgive your sins and to bring you in right relationship with him? And do you want to follow him with your life? Yes, you're a Christian. Good news. You're okay. Keep going. So if believers can't fall away, then why is this here? He's just like, I'm bored. I'm going to write some stuff. No, I think it's here because... There's a danger. And for the Hebrew people, the screws are really turning. It was not convenient to be a Christian anymore. It was actually really inconvenient. And they were getting to a point where they were starting to look over their shoulder. And they were like, you know, it'd be a lot easier if I just walked out that door. My life would get so much simpler, much better, if I just said, nah, it's okay. Have you been there? Maybe for you, you wake up and you're like, man, that sin that I swore I'd never do again, that seems like it's still right there. And I'm just tired of the fight. Tired of messing up. I'm tired of being wrong. I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe it's not worth it anymore. Or maybe you've been in a place where God has allowed 
some very painful things to happen to you or to your loved ones that have gone through some severe trials where you start looking at it and you're like, what did I do to you, God? Maybe this isn't working because you don't seem to be working out for me. You've allowed some really bad things to happen and I'm not sure I really like you. Maybe I just want to take a walk out the door and say, forget it. We've been in that place where we struggle and we're not sure. So what the author is saying is, hey, when you get that feeling, remember what you're actually talking about here. Remember what you're actually considering. Remember that this is the only place that salvation, grace, mercy, love, it's the only source. There's, there's no other place that you can go. Imagine it like this. It's almost as if he's painting a picture and saying, hey, guys, consider the conversation that you will be having with Jesus if you walk away and never come back, right? Imagine that you've died and you are standing before the judgment seat of God. Jesus is talking to you and he's saying, okay, so let me get this right. I made this really cool world and you horribly broke it because you wanted to be God, not me to be God, okay? Um, So then I became a human, the God of the universe who had all power through whom everything was created. I came down and I struggled and I was sleepless and I struggled with all the things you did so that I could sympathize with you. And by the way, a lot of you were real jerks during that time. And then I allow myself to be brutally murdered, crucified, because you could never save yourself. So I came to save you. And all of your junk and your stupidity, I took the punishment for that on myself. And you took the perfect life that I lived for you. And then I promised I would always be with you. I promised I would never leave you, that you would always have my love. Oh, and by the way, I sent you my spirit. I called you into community with other Christians. I swore that I would come back and I would fix everything that's broken in this world. That I did all those things. And then you said, "Eh, I think I'm going to go. Are you kidding me? That's the definition of insanity and lunacy. And so the author uses such strong language because he's trying to say, think about what you're saying. That's crazy. If you walk away from Jesus, what hope do you have? The answer is none. And it's a frightening thing. And Hebrews loves us enough to give us those stark warnings. In Hebrews chapter 10, it even gives one that's equally as strong that basically says, look, if you're not trusting in God, If you're not following him, it's you and God on the judgment day and there is no buffer. And then it goes on to say, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So if if you think church and being nice to people is going to be enough for you, let me frighten you lovingly to say that will leave you in a place where it will be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because if you are trusting in Christ, you are in the hands of the living God in a very different way as a loving child, protected, nurtured, and loved. If you are apart from Christ, you can expect only judgment. So he's shaking us by the shoulders and saying, stop, think about this. Don't give up, keep going. So that's the stick. He's trying to jostle us awake. He's trying to say, if you're here, if you're playing church, stop it. There's no hope there. Turn instead to Christ himself. Now, for some of you that are more tenderhearted, now you're a little bit neurotic and like, oh gosh, (laughs) 
Am I okay? Does Jesus love me? Am I on the way out? Have I screwed up so much that I can never be loved again? Let me remind you, he gives you these words not to make you neurotic, but to convince you to set your eyes on Jesus. Remember Peter when he stepped out of the boat and walked on water when he was looking at Jesus? And then he started looking at the waves around him and like a stone, straight down. It's that idea. The author of Hebrews isn't writing this so that you start looking around at the waves. Like, Am I good enough? Am I growing enough? Am I working enough? He's saying you have got to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. It's your only hope. Okay. You guys ready to move on to the carrot yet? Because <laughs> I am. Just remember that your standing with God is only by faith alone. Only by grace alone, through the work of Christ alone, always and forever. And what's great about this is he doesn't end this hard section by saying, now here's 10 things you have to do to be better, and then you're going to be okay and you don't have to worry. Instead, he says, here's how good your God is. That's a very different thing here, where he's saying, fix your eyes on Christ. He is utterly trustworthy. So he offers a steadfast assurance. After he drops the hammer He immediately starts picking up the pieces and says, hey, by the way, I'm sure of better things for you. I've seen how you started. I know you know God. I know you love him. I warn you because I love you, but I'm sure of better things for you. Keep going. Just as you started well, finish well, but I'm warning you so that you don't get sluggish, so that you don't stop listening because the expectation of the Christian life is that we keep growing. We keep following after Christ. He wants us to have the full assurance of hope. And the language changes to rock solid guaranteed language, which is what this whole thing about the oath is about. He's saying you can trust God because he's faithful. And then he starts talking about oaths. And that's when most of us were like, I don't know what's happening anymore. Because we don't typically make oaths or swear on things that are greater than ourselves unless you're like in a courtroom setting. But essentially what he's saying is God's promises are triple guaranteed. He's, and he uses the example of Abraham where God made a promise to Abraham and then later he swore that he would do that promise and then he adds that nice little thing, oh, by the way, God cannot lie. So when God tells you things, they are rock solid trustworthy. When he says, I know you have experienced pain and horrible things, but I will one day wipe away every tear, you know that it's gonna happen. When he says there is nothing, nothing that will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, you can take it to the bank. When he says, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will be with you, I will be for you, I will grow you into what you're supposed to be, you know that it's true. That's what the author wants us to set our eyes on. There's language of security, of steadfastness, of those to go to, those who go to him for refuge will find him a rock. And I love, I love the metaphor he uses. He gets at this idea that there's no life circumstance that can change or weaken his promises. And then my favorite part is in verse 19 where he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain. I have recently learned the importance of an anchor. Most of you were aware that we had a hurricane come through here. 
And there was a really great object lesson that I saw in the news, I'm not sure you did, of a picture of what happens when you don't have an anchor. So this is right down the road from my favorite coffee shop, Sanford, Florida, Lake Monroe. Did any of you see this on TV? There's this boat that somehow, the guy must have skipped Boy Scouts and didn't know his knots. It came loose. And what's happening right now is there's a seawall or a lake wall, it's Lake Monroe. There's a wall and there's a boat and then there's waves. And what's happening is just this, over and over again. That boat doesn't have a chance and by now it's about half sunk. And it's just getting bombarded because it is utterly subject to the temperament of nature right now. It is not hooked down to anything and the winds and the waves are accosting it with their full force and that helpless boat, it's, it's done. It's not gonna make it. It's over for that boat. I think that's a lot of times how life feels for us, right? We feel like, man, I'm just floating out here in either work pressure or home pressure or the struggles of my relationship or how people are treating me at school or the junk that I'm wrestling with just keeps knocking me back and forth. And I feel like I'm between a wave and a rock wall and eventually friction's gonna win. And I'm just getting battered. What this passage of scripture is telling you is that you have a rock solid anchor. Essentially what it's saying is you are united to Christ Jesus. If you trust in him, you are connected to him. Oh, and by the way, that connection, which talks about it reaching behind the veil, reaches all the way into the very presence of God, where you will follow Christ one day. So it's saying that there is a, an objective reality. It is not a naive, wishful thinking when it talks about hope, but it's saying there is an objective reality that if you trust in Jesus, you are anchored, you are tethered with an unbreakable bond that will hold you fast. And as I was, I was getting ready for this, I, I read a commentary by John Calvin. And if you're a Presbyterian pastor, anytime you can sneak in a John Calvin quote, you actually get bonus points. Jeff will give me cookies after the service. It's great. But listen to what John Calvin says when he describes this reality. Thus, when you are united to God, though we must struggle with continual storms, we know that to be true. We know. We are yet beyond the peril of shipwreck. The author of Hebrews is reminding the people he's writing to as well as he's reminding us, hey, the way I see the waves, I'm not pretending that it's fine. Becoming a follower of Christ is not like an easy living punch card. It's usually pretty challenging. But remember that no matter what storm, what buffeting life or your brokenness or your sinfulness or your family or your job or the, the tapes that play in your head, no matter what accosts you, you have an anchor that is immovable because it's attached to Jesus Christ, God himself. And in that, take hope and take encouragement. Your hope is not in your ability to not fall away. Your hope is not that you will believe enough to not fall away. Your hope is that God is not a liar. And that he has made promises and that he is strong enough to hold you fast 
no matter what happens, no matter what pressures or struggles. No matter where you are today, the application is the same. That's simple, right? For everybody, there's one application. If you don't know Jesus, if you're not sure where you are in your faith, if you're thinking about taking a walk out the door and throwing in the towel, the application is the same. Cling to Christ because he is your rock. He is your anchor. I want to leave you with a a mental picture, an illustration. So most of you have held a baby before. The past two and a half months, I have a lot more opportunity to hold a baby because that's how old Knox, our son, is. I'm new to the game, but there's this really cool thing when you're holding a baby that they do. If you put your finger out, they grab on. I don't know why, but you just feel really awesome when a baby's holding on to your finger. You're like, apparently this child likes me more than anything else in the world right now. Clinging onto my finger. But if, if I'm holding Knox, right, and Knox is grabbing onto my finger and he is holding on with all his strength, man, he is gripping it. Is his grip on my finger what will keep him from falling down to the floor? No. It's the fact that he's got his dad's bear hug around him and there is no way. Now, I'm, I'm uncoordinated and awkward, but there is no way that I'm going to let that child fall to the ground. His grip on my finger has nothing to do with the fact that I'm going to hold him fast. It's not that different in our relationship with God. We are called to cling to him with all of our strength, to love the Lord with our whole heart, mind, soul, everything. Cling to him. Do it. The the book of Hebrews, the whole Bible urges you, cling to him. But know that your grip on his finger is never what holds you secure. It is the fact that the arms of God himself are wrapped around you, holding you secure. And you will not drop because our tiny little fingers have enough faith. You will not drop because God is holding you in his untiring, unbreakable arms. Bear hug. So as you go here today, heed the warning. Listen to the voice of God. Keep growing. Cling to him. Don't give up. But know that the only reason we can do that is because he is holding us so securely. And when we know that, then we are free to grow. Then we are free to strive to keep learning because we know we are secure and resting in him. So hold on to him with all your might, but know that he's got you in a bear hook too. All right, let's pray. God, thank you that you do not depend on our puny strength, but we utterly depend on you. And even the call to keep growing And keep learning, keeping on learning is a call to dependency. It's a call to seeing that you are good and trustworthy and that we have to cling to you with our whole strength. But in doing that, you are so much stronger than we are. And we rest in the fact that our arms are not strong, but you are. The God of the universe calls us his children. May we never want to walk away from that. Keep us strong in your grip, we ask. Oh, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.